Welcome to Good Grief, a podcast dedicated to having a real and honest conversation about mourning and loss. Each episode is based on a theme that we'll unpack with expert interviews, novice slice-of-life anecdotes, and where appropriate, some relevant cultural references. Full disclosure, at the beginning of 2018, I lost my mom to a very brief but brutal fight with lung cancer. We were extremely close, and I was pretty lost when she passed. For now, this podcast is mostly a journal of my personal experience, an attempt to share what my grieving process has been like in hopes that anyone going through something similar will find this helpful, because it truly has been helpful for me. This week's theme, nostalgia. As my plane from Burbank made its descent into Oakland through the familiar, soggy marine layer of the Bay Area, I tried to calculate how long I had been away from home. The past few weeks with my mom in the ICU felt like months. It was really just a few days ago when her intensivist was computing the alchemy of diuretics to Ativan to blood oxygen levels against a rapidly shrinking sliver of hope. I felt like we had lived our entire lifetime in the rhythm of a respirator. If I could make a pie chart of my memories of my mom that I could recall in the first few weeks after she passed, 90% of it would be composed of her final days in the hospital. The remaining thin slice would be dedicated to the previous 34 years we spent together. It was like her cancer had spread through all of our memories. As I would later find out, this is actually a pretty common response to trauma. And here's how it works. While it may appear to be a cruel game that your brain plays on you, it's actually a trait that you've acquired to help you survive. It's the result of an observed psychological heuristic called the peak end rule. In essence, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, it states that the entirety of an experience, every little detail, all the rough edges, it's just way too much for you to remember. So your brain logs the apex emotion you experienced, the peak, and the last emotion you experienced, the end. This way, you can quickly recall all of the memories you have without having to relive every painful moment. It's kind of like shuffling through a jukebox. Living in 2018, you've certainly heard the term trigger. Well, this is how and why your brain creates triggers. It's to help you avoid more future trauma. For more on this, I recommend Googling colonoscopies in memory. It's fascinating. This is also the reason why nostalgia is so powerful and can make us do some weird and sometimes regrettable things. And music is an incredibly powerful trigger. This can't be understated. It's used in all kinds of trauma therapies to help people create new associations and play back old ones. It does weird things to your memory. It distorts your perception of the present and It'll make you dig through an ex's Instagram when you're a few drinks in after you hear that banger from 2010. The awful things they did, the discomfort and insecurities, they all fade away. And they're overshadowed by the simple fact that you have history and that there's something familiar there and sometimes that's enough to forgive or at least drunkenly, momentarily, forget. Nostalgia is like playing telephone with a younger version of yourself. As your messages pass through past versions of you, it slowly drifts farther from unattractive facts and closer to something that you actually want to remember. All of this is to say that your memory doesn't always remember things exactly as they happened. This isn't just 
my clever reflection. This is the basis for emo music and the reason why country singers talk about tailgating on dirt roads when they actually live in penthouses off of Broadway in Nashville. They are using triggers. The philosopher Theodore Adorno even wrote an entire Marxist critique on popular music and nostalgia, stating that the social and psychological factors of popular music are that it acts as a social cement to keep people obedient and subservient to the status quo of existing power structures. Okay, um, I am not going to go that far. I am just saying that there is a profound manipulative power when you combine memory with music, so you should maybe wait until you sober up before sliding into the DMs after hearing that deep cut from High Violet. Leave your home Change your name Live alone Eat your cake This emotional whiplash can actually work to your advantage, though, if you know how to ride the wave right. If you can trigger the right memory at the right time, it can accelerate you through some really dark places and bring you back to the light. And my mom was a master of this technique in more ways than I ever knew. See, she fucking loved rock and roll. Love isn't really the right word for it, and for fear of sounding trite, I will say that rock and roll was her religion. Excuse me. That is to say that before she loved God, before she loved country, before she loved really anything but me, she fucking loved rock and roll. Deep cuts and rare seven inches, lyric sheets and liner notes, she was Springsteen's Bobby Jean, Tom Waits's Martha, Adam Duritz's Maria, the heart of Saturday night, she was an American girl. Raised on a farm in rural Arkansas in the 1960s and 70s, she was actually alone with music, acutely alone with music, alone in a way that most people will never be able to experience in the age of digital media and smartphones. Imagine every input you have. Imagine Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and Snapchat and imagine that all of that has been replaced by about 50 songs, their lyrics and a few bottles of Coca-Cola. Oh, and a whole lot of hormones. Springsteen's Greeting from Ashbury Park was released when my mom was 13. Born to Run, 15. Darkness on the Edge of Town dropped 14 days before her 18th birthday. When she left the University of Arkansas after her sophomore year to move to Hollywood, it proved that music was more than a soundtrack to her youth. It was the script that she would act out. It was her destiny. When she ended up pregnant with me a few years later, I became the conduit of that destiny. And it should be noted that I was actually conceived a few months after the album Nebraska was released, and I do not think this is in any way a coincidence. So, like a proper Springsteen narrative, our life was not without darkness. Proper darkness. Probably the most painful and most nagging was money. 
It was the source of many sleepless nights and silent car rides home from court-ordered child exchange locations where my mom would pick me up from visits with my dad. In those dark moments, she would sift through an assortment of worn cassettes, select the appropriate flavor of nostalgia, and turn it to 11. moment, the hot rent check would clear faster. The quarter tank of gas would get us all the way home, or the looks we got from our neighbors when the muffler on our ancient Toyota station wagon would scrape as we pulled out of the driveway would just disappear. Occasionally, my mom would turn the music down and look at me directly in the eyes and say, remember, son, remember to play this song at my funeral. As a child, I thought she was just being pretty damn dramatic. In those days, her health was impeccable. She took such good care of herself that we were frequently mistaken for siblings. Little did she know that she was actually creating powerful, powerful triggers for me. When we were planning her memorial, there was an incredible flood of support. She touched a lot of people, and the bulk of the work was lifted from our shoulders by people who wanted to pay tribute in some way. I had one request, uh, that I be able to fulfill my duty and play the songs that she asked me to all those years ago. I spent some long, dark nights curating the ultimate funeral playlist for the Irish wake that my mom would have wanted. Occasionally, I'd pop my head out and ask my fiance, hey, is it appropriate to play the entire album of the 59 sound, or can I play Born to Run more than once? Listening to it all, I pulled decades back from the cancer side of the memory pie chart. It was my mom's way of showing me that no matter how big the overwhelming heap of awful shit was that was on my plate, it could always be momentarily overlooked by the transformative power of rock and roll played very fucking loud. Cause these chains I've been hearing now for most of my life And these chains I've been hearing now for most of my life To hear the 59 sound coming through on Grandmama's radio This has been episode two of Good Grief. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Do you like American music? I like American music. I also like Violent Femmes references. So I have linked my mom's playlist uh, in the show notes if anyone is curious. If you like this, please subscribe. Uh, tell your podcasty friends about it. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or you just want to reach out, feeling lonely, um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Blake of Today, or just send me an email at blakeoftoday at gmail.com. I will leave you with this line from the Gaslight Anthem. A song that my mom loved very much. When we float out into the ether, into the everlasting arms, I hope we don't hear Marley's chains we forged in life. Take care of yourselves. in her name and every reason. And I know because we were kids and we used to hang. And I know because we were kids and we used to hang to hear the 59 sound coming through on Grandmama's radio. You hear the rattling chains in the hospital walls. Did you hear?